Chapter 9 of The Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage. The Radio Planet by Ralph Mile Farley. A prisoner. The squad of their king soldiers, with Miles Cabot as their prisoner, had traversed nowhere near the distance to the palace, when they turned from the street through a gate. Where are they going to take me now? Miles wondered. This question was soon answered, for the party entered a building which was evidently a dwelling of the better class. The hall was well lighted, so that Miles blinked at the sudden glare. The leader of the party placed himself squarely in front of his prisoner, with hands on his hips, and remarked with apparent irrelevance, Well, we fool Quiven, didn't we? The prisoner stared at him in surprise. It was Judd, Judd, disguised as a common soldier. Cabot laughed with relief. You certainly gave me a bad 144th part of a day, he asserted. I didn't recognize you in your street clothes. What is the great idea? The great idea, the noble replied, to quote your phrase, is that I did truly represent Tear of the Grim. He authorized me to arrest you in his name. The pretty little spy will report your capture to our killer, and her father will stonely refuse to reveal where you are imprisoned. Meanwhile, I shall give the Golden One time to escape and shall then send a second squad to seize your effects. Your expedition will start immediately. Come, unbind the prisoner. As soon as his bonds were loosed, Miles warmly grasped the hand of his benefactor. You are all right, he exclaimed. You have completely succeeded without leaving anything to explain. I always succeed, and I never have to explain anything, Judd replied a bit coldly. And so, late that night, the radio man, dressed in leather tunic and helmet, and armed with a tempered wood rapier, set out with his bodyguard for the western mountains. In silence, and with the minimum of lights, they treaded the streets of Judd's compound and then the streets of the city until they came to the west gate, where a pass signed by Thea of the Grim gave them free exit. Thence they moved due westward across the plain, with scouts thrown out to guard against contact with any roving roys. By daybreak they had reached the cover of the wooded foothills, and there they camped for a full day of much-needed rest. Finally, on the second morning following their stealthy departure from Verkingi, their journey really started. The commander of the bodyguard was an intelligent youth named Crota. During the meals at the first encampment, Miles described to Crota in considerable detail the particular form of copper pyrit which furnished the bulk of the copper used for electrical purposes on the continent of Cupia. After listening intently to this description for about the fifth time, Crota smiled and said, We Vikings place no stock in pretty stones except as plaything for children. 
but I do recall the little golden cubes with which the children of one of the hill villages are accustomed to play tandem. This village, Sir by name, is only a day's journey to the southward. Let us turn our steps thither and learn from the children where they get their toys. <sighs> Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, the earthman quoted to himself. And so they set out to the south wood, following a trail which wound in and out between the fertile silver-green hills, which were, for the most part, scantily wooded. Toward the close of the day, Crotus scouts established contact with the outpost of the village which they were seeking, and after an exchange of communications by runner, the expedition was given free passage to proceed. Shortly thereafter, they came in sight of the village itself. From among the surrounding verdant rolling terrain there arose one rocky eminence with precipitous sides, and with a flat summit on which stood the village of Sir, surrounded by a strong wooden palisade. Up the face of the cliff there ran a narrow zigzag path, cut in the living rock, and overhung by many a bastion from which huge stones could be tumbled or molten pitch poured on any invaders so rash as to attempt the ascent. Along this path the expedition crawled in single file with many pauses to draw their breath, and before they reached the summit Cabot realized full well how it was that Sir, the southernmost outpost of Verkirgian civilization, had so long and so successfully withstood the onslaughts of the wild and savage Roys. The inhabitants, furry Verkings, turned out in large numbers to greet the visitors, and especially to inspect the furless body and the much overfurred chin of the earth man. Guides led the expedition to a large public hall where, after a speech of welcome by the headman of the village, they were fed and quartered for the night. Between the meal and bedtime, the visiting soldiers strolled out to see the sights by the pale pink light of the unseen setting sun. Cabot and Crota together walked to the west wall to observe the sunset. As the two of them leaned on the parapet, a rattling noise on the rocky walk beside them disturbed their reverie. Looking down, they saw three furry children rolling some small objects along the ground. With a slight exclamation of surprise and pleasure, the Verking soldiers swooped down upon the youngsters, scooped up one of the toys and handed it to the Earthman. Tom Tom, Crota laconically announced. And sure enough, it was one of the small game cubes which he had described to his companion. But before the latter had had the slightest opportunity to examine it, the bespalled infant let out a howl of childish rage and commenced to assail Miles with fists and teeth and feet. Stop that! Crota shouted, grabbing him by one arm and pulling him away. We don't want to keep your tum tum. We merely want to look at it. This gentleman has never seen a tum tum. Gentleman? the boy replied from a safe distance. Come and sold you. Bah! But Miles Cabot was too engrossed to notice the insult. The small cube in his hand was undoubtedly a metallic crystal, but whether chalcoprit or not he could not tell in the fading light. In fact, it might be the sunset which gave the stone its coppery thing. 
Taking a small flint knife from a leather sheet that hung from his belt, Miles offered it to the child in exchange for the toy, in spite of Crotus' gasping protest at the extravagance. The boy eagerly accepted the offer, remarking, Thank you, sir. You should take off those clothes. It was a very neat and subtle compliment. Gentlemen Verkings never wore clothes. Cabot was impressed. Your name, my son? he asked, patting the fury little creature on the head. Tomo the Brief, was the reply. I shall remember it. Then he hurried back to the public hall, eager to examine his purchase by the light of the old flares. Sure enough, it turned out to be really pyrites, and by its deep color probably a pyrite rich in copper. To the radio man it meant the first tangible step toward the accomplishment of the greatest radio feat ever undertaken on two worlds, namely the construction of a complete sending and receiving set-out of nothing but basic materials in their natural state without the aid of a single previously fabricated man-made tool, utensil, or chemical. To this day, Miles wear this cube as a pendant charm in commemoration of that momentous occasion. As he lay on the floor of the public building that night, the Earthman reviewed the event of the day until he came to the episode of the purchase of the cubicle pyrite crystal from Little Tomo. Your name, my son? Cabot had asked him. My son, thought Cabot. I have a son of my own across the boiling seas on the continent of Cupia, and a wife, the most beautiful and sweetest lady in Poros. They are in dire danger, or were many months ago when I received the SOS which led me to return through the skies to this planet. Oh, how I wish that I could learn what that danger was, and what has happened to them since then. Thus amused, and yet when he came to figure up the time since his capture, he was able to account for less than three weeks of earth time. Perhaps there was still a chance of rescue, if he would but hurry. The danger which had inspired his leader's call for help was undoubtedly due to the return of Prince Yuri across the boiling seas. For all that Miles knew, Princess Lila and the loyal Cupians were still holding out against their renegade prince. The message which Cabot had sticked out into the ether from the radio station of the Ants had been sent only a few days after the SOS. If received by Lila or any of her friends, it had undoubtedly served to encourage them to stiffen their resistance to the usurper, and if received by Yuri, it had undoubtedly thrown into him the fear of the great builder. Musing and hoping thus, the Earthman fell into a troubled sleep, through which there swirled a tangled phantasmagoria of ant-men, coupians, whistling bees, and verkings, with occasional glimpses of a little blue-eyed blonde head, sometimes surmounted by golden curls and two dainty antennae, but sometimes completely covered with golden fur. Shortly after sunrise he awoke and aroused Crota, and no time must be lost. The Princess Lila must be saved. But there was nothing they could do until their host brought the food for the morning meal. From the bearers they now ascertained that the tum-tum cubes were gathered in a cleft in a rock only a short distance from the village, and that, 
Although the perfect cubes were rare and quite highly prized, the imperfect specimen were present in great quantities. In fact, hundreds of cartloads had been mined and picked over in search of perfect cubes, and thus all this ore would be available in return for the mere trouble of shoveling it into carts. As soon as arrangements could be made with the headman of Sir, Cabot and his party, accompanied by guides, crept down the narrow zigzag path through the plain below the village and proceeded up a ravine to the quarry, where they verified all that had been told them. It was a beautiful sight, a rocky wall out of a cleft in which there seemed to pour a waterfall of gold. But on close inspection, every cube was seen to be nicked or bent or out of proportion, or jammed part way through into some other cube. The soldiers, both those from Verkingi and those from Sur, scrambled up the golden cascade and started hacking the crystals out of the solid formation in search for perfect cubes, while their two leaders watched them with amusement from below. All at once there came a shriek, and once of the Verkings toppled the whole length of the pow, almost at Cabot's feet, where he lay perfectly still, the wooden shaft of an arrow projecting from one eyeball. Royce, Crota shouted. Instantly every member of the party took cover with military precision behind some rock or tree. They had not long to wait, for a shower of missiles from up the valley soon apprised them of the location of the enemy. So the Vikings thereafter remained alert. Those who had bows drew them and discharged a flint-tipped arrow at every stir of grass or bush in the locality whence the missiles of the enemy had come. We know not their number, Crota whispered to Cabot. And since we have accomplished our mission, let us return to Sur as speedily as possible. Agreed, the earthman replied. The withdrawal was accomplished as follows. Crota first dispatched runners to the village to inform the inhabitants of the situation. Then, leaving a small rear guard of archers and slingers to cover their retreat, he formed the remainder of the expedition in open order, and set out for Sir as rapidly as the cover would permit. The enemy kept pretty well hidden, but it was evident from the increase of arrows and pebbles that their numbers were steadily augmenting. Noting this, Crota sent another runner ahead with this information. It now became necessary to replenish and relieve the rear guard, of which several were dead, several more wounded, and the rest tired and out of ammunition. This done, Crota ordered the main body of his force to leave cover and take up the double quick. The result was unexpected. A hundred or more roys charged yelling down the ravine through the Viking rearguard, and straight at Cabot's men, who at once ran to cover again and took deadly toll to the oncoming enemy. But the roys so greatly outnumbered the Vikings that the tide could not be stemmed, and soon the two groups were mingled together in a thin mass. The first rush was met, spare on spare, then the sharp wooden sword was drawn, and Cabot found himself lunging and parrying against three naked fury warriors. 
the neck was the vulnerable spot of the Vikings, and it was this point which the Royals strove to reach, as Cabot soon noted, that simplified matters. For guarding one's neck against such crude swordsmen as these fury aborigines was easy for a skilled fencer such as he. Accordingly, one by one, he ran three antagonists through the body. Just as he was withdrawing his blade from his last victim, he noted that Crowder was being hard-pressed by a burly Roy swordsman. So he hastened to his friend's assistance. And it was just in time, for even as Cabot approached, the naked Roy knocked the leather-clad Verking's weapon from his hand with a particularly dexterous sideswipe, and thus had Crota at his mercy. But before the naked one could follow up his advantage, the earthman hurled his own sword like a spur, and down went the Roy, impelled through the back, carrying Crota with him as he fell. Cabot paused to draw breath, and was just viewing with satisfaction the lucky results of his chance throw, when a peremptory command of yield behind him caused him to wheel about and confront a new enemy. The author of the shout was a massive fury warrior with a placid, almost bovine face which nevertheless betokened considerable intellect. And to whom would I yield, if I did yield? Mouse asked, facing unarmed the poised sword of his new enemy. Grod the Silent, King of the Roys, was the dignified reply. I thought that At the Terrible was King of your people, the Earthman returned. Sparring for time. That is what Ad thinks too, the other answered with a slight smile. But the smile was short-lived, for Miles Cabot, having momentarily distracted his opponent's attention by this conversation, stepped suddenly under the guard of the furry Grud and planted his fist square on Grud's fat chin. Down crashed the king his sword clattering from his nerveless hand. In an instant, Mal snatched up the blade and bestrode his prostrate foe. Just as he was about to plunge its point into Grod's vitals, there occurred to him the proverb of Poblath, while enemy dispute, the realm is at peace. With Grod the Silent and At the Terrible both contending for the leadership of the Roys, Verkinga might enjoy a respite from the depredations of this wild and lawless race. He would leave the fallen Roy for dead, rather than put him actually in that condition. Accordingly, he sprang to the aid of his companions. Crota was already back in the fray, his own sword in his hands once more, and the sword of his late burly opponent slung at his side. Quite evidently, he did not intend to be disarmed again. Three Viking common soldiers and Crota and Miles now confronted seven Roys. This constituted a fairly even match, 
for the superior intelligence and the leather armor of the men of Verkingi and Sir offset the greater numbers of their aboriginal antagonists. What the outcome would have been can never be known, for at that moment the reinforcements from the village came charging up the ravine, and at the same instant the top of the cliffs were lined with roys, who sent a shower of arrows upon those below. The contending twelve immediately separated. Cabot and his followers passed within the protection of his rescuers, and the return to Sir was renewed. The commander of the rescue party threw out a strong rear guard, and the Viking archers on both flanks peppered the cliff tops with slingshots and arrows, but the marauding roys harassed every step of the retreat. There was some respite when Cabot's party reached the plain where stood the rocky peak with the village of Sir on its summit, for arrows could not carry from the cover of the surrounding woods to the foot of the rocks. But, as the tired party began the ascent of the narrow path on the face of the cliff, they noted that the roys were forming solid banks of wooden shields and were advancing across the plain. Arrows now began to fly from below at the ascending Verking party, several of whom toppled and fell down the face of the cliff, and then the warrior just above Miles on the narrow path clutched his breath with a gasp and dropped square upon the earthman, who braced himself and caught the body, thus preventing it from being dashed to pieces at the foot of the rocks. Whether or not the furry soldier was dead could not be ascertained until Miles should have reached the summit, so up he toiled with his burden until he gained the protection of the palisade, where he laid the verking gently on the ground and tore open his leather tunic to see if any life were present. The wounded man still breathed, though hoarsely, and his heart still beat, but there was a gaping hole in one side of his chest, no harrow protruding from this hole. Miles tenderly turned the man over to see if the wound extended clear through. It did, almost and from the man's side there projected the tip of a bullet, the steel-shattered tip of a leaden rifle bullet. End of chapter 9 A Prisoner Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage